All right, well, if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Gospel Affected Soul. And we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, from verse 4 through to the end of verse 7. And what a delightful and wonderful passage this is. So let's be addressed by God's word together. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, for its clarity, for its generosity, from its desire to call us to be addressed by you. And Lord, that's what you're doing in your word. You are addressing us. And so Lord, would we be addressed by you then today? Lord, help our hearts to be not only turned towards Calvary, but soft, that we may hear your words, that we may engage with your words, be encouraged and convicted and challenged and blessed in accordance with the Holy Spirit and your word. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, that moment when somebody becomes a Christian really is an incredible one, isn't it? Before I became a pastor over in Australia, I was a pastor in the UK for 10 years before. And one of my jobs was to oversee Christianity Explored. And it was through Christianity Explored that many, many people came to know Jesus as Lord. And it was such a wonderful experience every single time somebody became a Christian. Because one of the things that was distinct about that individual is they were incredibly exhilarated and joyful. That moment when they realize, I've been born again. That moment when they realize it's possible for me, even in the midst of my life, to be forgiven of my sin and reconciled to God and adopted into his family and to know for sure that heaven is my home. That individual's life is totally transformed and as it opens up to them, They're amazed. They're staggered that they get to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember one guy who became a Christian and he just said, you know, even if I became a Christian, which I'm not going to, but even if I became a Christian, I wouldn't want to come to church or anything because I have a lot on on a Sunday. And I said, well, okay, well, we'll see how you go if you become a Christian. And he became a Christian and you couldn't keep him away from church. He was just so excited about everything God had done in his life. He was so amazed that he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. It changed his life. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can remember your story when you went from death to life and the zeal and joy and exhilaration that came with that. And yet for so many folk over time, I think it would be true to say that that initial joy... And that initial exhilaration so often begins to fade. As the pressures of life take their course, 
as the realities of living in a fallen world play their part, as the challenges of facing opposition in their faith really begin to wane on them, and as dealing with their own heart, their own sinful nature, and the process of sanctification begins to take place in their life and they seek to battle with sin, that initial exhilaration and joy in the Lord that amazed them somehow faded. So they're a Christian, but they're not excited. They're filled with joy like the way they used to be at one time in their life. Maybe you can relate to that too. Well, the thing that I love about this text here from verses 4 through 7 is because Paul, I think, speaks into that feeling. He speaks into that experience. And he teaches us this one thing. Out of these four verses, he teaches us this one thing, and it's this, that knowing Christ in and through the gospel can have a sincere and ongoing effect on our hearts. That knowing Christ in and through the gospel, that truly knowing him can have a sincere and ongoing effect on our hearts. See, knowing Christ in and through the gospel is a theme that has run all the way through the book of Philippians. So right from start to end, it's there. We see it first of all in chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul introduces the gospel to us. And then in chapter 3, and verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He wants to make it clear that knowing Jesus Christ in my life, there is no greater thing. Knowing Jesus Christ in and through the gospel, not just knowing him in my mind, but truly knowing him in a relational way. There is no greater thing in my life. Knowing Christ in and through the gospel, there's nothing greater. Yet his concern here for us as a congregation is not primarily theological anymore. His concern for us as a congregation is now experiential. See, what we have here in these verses can appear to be three very dry commands to follow. So as a Christian, suck it up, let's get on with it. Be joyful, be gentle, pray a lot. But this is far more than that. What we have here are three imperatives designed, I think, to whet our appetites. Designed to whet our appetites into understanding that this is what it looks like when you truly know Christ. These are the things you feel and experience when you truly know Christ. When you truly know him as a friend. When you truly know him as a redeemer. When you truly walk with him in your life. And one of the things I so love about this text in particular is there is no individual in the church of the Philippians or there is no individual here this Sunday, whatever the circumstances, that this text does not apply to. See, this text is absolutely packed with categorical and comprehensive statements. So each verse, if you look carefully, contains verses like always, everyone, anything, everything, all, All the time he's talking about, this is all of you. All of you need to listen to these verses. All of us are being addressed by God himself. Contains us all. 
And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then I want you to know this text, this text addresses you. Because Christ wants you to know him as your Lord and Saviour. He came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And he wants you to draw you into a relationship with him. This text addresses you. And if you're here today as a Christian, this text addresses you as well. It was written to a church. It was written primarily to Christians. And yet Paul wants to take us by the hand afresh and help us see again what knowing Christ in and through the gospel, what the effects of that really can be. And it should, I think, whet our appetites and cause us to want to say, I want to know Christ like that. I want to know the Lord like that. So what does a gospel-affected soul look like? What does it actually look like to walk with Christ? Well, three things. Here's the first. The gospel-affected soul is joyful. Look away with me at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, this isn't the first time that we've seen joy in this letter. That's why the subtext for the book of Philippians, we call it the source of true joy. One of the main themes running through this book is joy. So chapter 1, verse 4, we read, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel with me from the first day until now. Whenever I think about you as a church, I always pray with joy because of all of your partnership in the gospel with me. Then chapter 3, verse 1, Finally then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You can tell he's a preacher because he says finally halfway through the book. You know, it's like finally. And next next week you're going to find he says, oh, and so finally. He goes back to it again. He can't remember that he said it before. He's just got a lot of things to get off his chest. But finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There are two instances of 13 times that Paul mentions joy or rejoicing in this four-chapter letter. Quite literally, this letter is punctuated with a theme of joy. And yet, I think, unarguably in this letter, there is no place that mentions joy more emphatically than chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice. Rejoy yourselves. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, that's somewhat categoric, isn't it? And I can just imagine, you know, if you were reading this letter out to the Philippian church, I reckon it's about now, if Paul was preaching to them, that with this being the 13th time that he's mentioned joy, that there'd be some hands going up around the auditorium and just being like, hey, Paul, I'm just wondering, do you, do you mean me? Because, Paul, you don't know my life. Paul, I've just lost my job. Paul, I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford the home that my family are living in. Are you calling me to rejoice? Paul, do you know the suffering that I'm undergoing? Do you know that which I'm experiencing in my health right now? You don't mean me, right? You don't mean me being joyful. Paul, I've just buried a family member. We are grieving. You don't mean me, right? Understandably, there would be people in that congregation that are walking through things that are challenging. 
And this is Paul's response. Rejoice in the Lord always. I hear your objections. And again, I will say, rejoice. Does that not surprise you a little? Because it does me. And it did me as I came to this text. I mean, at best, I think, in that moment, Paul appears to be somewhat insensitive, somewhat uncaring, somewhat out of touch. What do you mean? Find joy. How can we find joy in the midst of challenges? To really understand Paul's heart and to understand Paul's point and to get over the hurdle of what we hear him say, we have to remember two things about him. Firstly, we have to remember that Paul is in prison as he writes this. Okay, he's not sipping lattes on Manly Beach. He's in prison. He knows what it is to be beaten. He knows what it is to suffer. And as he pens this letter, he's not aware, oh, don't worry, I'll be let out next week, so I'm off on holiday afterwards. He doesn't know if this will be the last thing that he writes. And as far as he's concerned, he could be dragged from this room in any moment put in a coliseum to face an oncoming lion that will sink its teeth into his neck and drag him around until he dies. Paul is completely unaware of what is going to happen. And 15 years prior to writing this this message in the church of Philippi itself, Paul was in prison there as well. He was beaten. He was put in prison. He had no idea what was going to happen to him. He knows what it is to suffer, and yet his point is still the same. Rejoice. Church, rejoice. Paul isn't out of touch. He knows what it is to suffer. Likewise, it would be true to say that Paul deeply loves this church. I mean, note again chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, my family, whom I love, and long for my joy and my crown. I, I, I think there are a few places in Scripture where you experience a pastor's compassion for his church more than in this book. It's so intimate and, and sensitive. He loves them. There is joy and there is crown. He, he's deeply concerned about them and deeply bothered for them. And so is Paul out of touch or uncaring? Not at all. Now, I submit to you it's because Paul that is, it's because he is in touch and caring that he pens this text and these words to them. See, in all reality, and I think we're all the same, the things of this world can so easily become our primary source of joy, can't they? You notice that? And so our jobs. They can so easily become our primary source of joy. We find great joy in them. Or our finances, if things are actually going well, we can find great joy in that. Or our families, or our relationships, or our health. These kings, things can so easily become our primary source of joy. But here's what happens when we do that. Those things are incredibly unstable. And so when we do that, our joy, you will have experienced it in your own life, goes somewhat up and down, don't you think? If we find our primary source of joy in our families, that's great. Until our family's gone through some real challenges and then our emotions go through the floor. Or we find our primary joy in our health, but then the doctor says, I'm sorry, you have cancer. And all joy is void. All joy goes. 
Because that was the source of our joy. Or our homes and our jobs. It's great while they're going well, but then they get called into the office and they say, I'm sorry, you're going to be losing your job. And suddenly our emotions go through the floor. We just can't cope because this was the source of our joy. If we look in the horizontal to the things of this world for our primary joy, our lives will go up and down and up and down. And yet what Paul is offering here and what Paul is modelling in his life, he's offering to the Philippian church and indeed us today an experience of joy which is far greater. A joy that is stable and unchanging and unwavering and ongoing. A joy that he wants us to have. A joy that God wants us to have, which is why this text is here. A joy that is in the Lord. A joy that is not primarily coming from the horizontal. A joy that is primarily coming from upward motivation. A joy that resounds with this truth. That whatever happens in my life, I can rejoin myself in the Lord because my name is written in the book of life. Because in God's kindness, He rescued me. I was far from Him. I was running away from Him. I didn't care about Him. And yet in grace, He died in my place. And now through Him, I can be forgiven of my sin. For blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been removed from him. My sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. I've been washed clean from everything I've done in my life. I've been reconciled to God. One who was once cut off from God, I can now spend time with him, not just as an individual, but as a father. I can spend time with the King of kings and Lord of lords who knows my name and assures me that he'll watch my coming and going. For surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The Holy Spirit is a a guarantee of my inheritance. I know I'm going to make it because it's by grace that I will make it. And I know when I do make it, I will see His face. And so whatever happens here on this earth, there will always be joy in Him because heaven is my home. And everything I experience then on this earth is at best temporal. But that day will be eternal and glorious. You see what Paul's doing? He's not saying, listen, whatever happens in your life, forget it. Don't be emotionally involved in that at all. But what he is saying, because he is in touch and because he does care, is do not find your primary source of joy in the things of this worth. They will not satisfy you. But whatever happens in this earth, rejoy yourself in the Lord. Because as you do that, you will feel a contentment and a peace and a profound joy, whatever the circumstances. Because you will realize your names are written in the book of life. Isn't that incredible? What a wonderful joy that he's holding out to us, that he's offering for us, that he's modeling for us in his life. And it's a joy that quite clearly comes, if you look at it in context, It comes through knowing Christ in and through the gospel. So what does it look like? What do you experience when you truly know the Lord, when you're truly working with the Lord in your life? Well, first and foremost, it looks like joy. A joy in Him. As you realize all that He's done for you, all that He continues to do for you, all that He will do for you. Such joy in Him, in the vertical, despite the horizontal. 
That's not all. Number two, the gospel affected Saul is gentle. Look with me at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now the word that is translated there as reasonableness is a really tricky one to translate. And so depending upon which version of the Bible you've got, you might read a different word there. So in the NIV it says gentleness. In other translations we read forbearance, tolerance, moderation, magnanimity, softness. There is a whole list of things because it's a really hard word to translate from the Greek through to the English. But the best way to understand it in sentiment of what Paul is talking about is, I think, to put two of those words together. What he's really talking about here is gentle forbearance. The act of showing kindness to someone even when they've done you wrong, even when they've hurt you or upset you or maybe offended you, even in that extremeness of circumstance, making sure you gently forbear with them in your life and in your tone and in your communication. And he's making it very clear that we need to let our gentle forbearance be known to everyone. You know, I'd say for me, personally, this is something that I've learned so much about and I think never been so tested in than now as a foster parent. You see, we have two foster children, as many of you would know. When they first came to us, they were two years old and four years old. We have three of our own as well. Now they're three years old and five years old. And our two foster children have brought our home great joys. There have been many times already that have been just a profound joy to have them in our home. Our foster son, when he, when he said to Emma, my wife, um, she was reading a Bible, and he just came strolling up and said, you're reading. Jesus is alive. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, he's alive, buddy. And then you pray at mealtimes. You say, Lord, thank you for dying in our place. And he's like, no, Jesus is alive. You know, he, <laughs> he's got it in his mind. And when you ask our foster daughter, you know, what's your favorite song? She says, oh, I believe. And you're like, yeah, baby. So when you put her to bed, you sing to her. What do you want me to sing? Let me guess. I believe. Yes. Now she's moving on to shake it up. But at the time, <laughs> for a long time, it was I believe, and it's the song that she asked for most when you get in the car. There have been many joys with having our two foster children, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't say also that there have been many, many hardships. It's probably been the hardest thing I've ever done. I'd move to a different continent quicker than taking on foster children. It's hard. I don't think I've ever experienced tiredness like it. You know, our foster son has, he, doesn't, he just has on and off. That's it. So it's on, 6 o'clock in the morning. Woo! Off at 7.30 at night. But the 6 o'clock, woo, is hard. You know, and it's just all day. And you're like, can you, can you just, I'm not a climbing frame. If there's any way of just giving me space. I'm a little tired. We've been really tired, and particularly when they're getting up in the night. It takes us back to when we had tiny children ourselves. It's also been incredibly noisy. And although I'm a drummer, I don't actually do too well with lots of noise. So I have been known to wear earphones in the car, and I haven't even got any music on. But I just can't handle this. It's just like, this is so loud! Just, just, just 
This is intense. And yet by a long way, the hardest thing for me in having foster children has been behaviour and dealing with their behaviour and in particular the behaviour of our foster daughter who was just two years old when she moved into our home. And her behaviour has been a challenge. You know, she, when she first moved in, would wee all over our house. And it's not that she hadn't been toilet trained, she had. She just wanted to wee all over our house. And so in the different rooms, the different carpets, you'd be treading and you think, oh, that, I don't think we've spilt anything there. And here's the thing, I, I thought for a long time that she was just doing it because she was nervous and stuff like that. And I still think that was primarily true, but I don't think that was always true. She was doing it at different times to let you know that she can do what she wants, thank you very much. She's meant to be weeing in the toilet. But I remember one time when I came in from work and I walked through the door and just as I walked through the door, she bent over and just went straight on the lounge floor. And at different times, we've put her on the step for being badly behaved. And as she would put her on the step, you'll say, you need to be seated. And she'll sit down. As soon as you move, she'll stand up and look at you. And as you walk back, she'll sit down. And let's just stand up again. And for a while, it seems sort of cute. But after a while, you just think, no, this is really testing me. And at different times, you, you really address her. And this two-year-old with bright blue eyes and baby blonde hair will tell you in no uncertain terms to F off. And it's been a challenge for me. Because I've thought at different times that this is defiling to my home. This is violating. Telling my children and my wife to F off. We're just trying to help you. We're just trying to serve you. We're just trying to lay our lives down for you. How dare you? And the fruit in my life at different times and in my heart and in my soul has without doubt been anger. How dare you come into my home We all over my house. Not listen to instructions. Tell us to F off when you've got a problem. When we're just trying to lay our lives down to serve you. Anger has come up in my heart at different times towards them. And yet here's what keeps me going. The realisation that once upon a time I was a foster kid before the Lord too. I would spend my life violating the Lord's home. I wasn't interested in him. I didn't give a stuff about him. So I'd be quite happy to stand opposed to God and tell him to get lost. Because I'm living my life, thank you very much. I'm doing my thing. And sure, I've heard about how you've sent your son for me. Thanks very much. But I'm just getting on with my life. Just leave me alone. Once upon a time before the Lord, I was a foster child too. And yet it was while I was a foster child to the Lord that he sent his son to die in my place. At the right time, he sent his only begotten son for me while I'm weeing over his house, while I'm standing in opposition before him, while I am telling him to F off. He sends his son to die in my place because he loves me. But when you realise that and when you believe that 
and when you walk closely with Christ, how can you not then gently forbear with others? How can you not? Because what has anybody done to you that you've not done to the Lord? And yet he issues you with gentleness and forbearance. So how can I not gently forbear with my foster children and for that matter, anyone else that comes into our care or comes into our lives or into our church or into our friendships? You know, these verses here, it says that the reasonable has been known to everyone. If people were chatting about you and thinking about you, what words would come to mind? If they were to review what you write on Facebook, if they were to review your texts, if they would review your conversations, what would they say? Would gentleness be a word they would use? This is profound, isn't it? The tone that we use as Christians. And Paul's point is clear, and I believe it is this, that this gentle forbearance comes through knowing Christ in and through the gospel. That this gentleness of soul and tone comes as we walk with Jesus and we live in light of the cross daily. How can our tone, whether it be written or in speech, be any different to his? Having been bared with so much, how can we not gently forbear with others? And then number three, there's another thing that it looks like to be affected by walking with Christ, and it's this. Number three, the gospel-affected soul is peaceful. Look with me at the second half of verse five. He writes, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, you probably thought that I was going to say gospel-affected soul is prayerful. But in all reality, to be honest with you, as you study this text, the emphasis here really isn't on prayer at all. This isn't a quiet time text, okay? This isn't a go-to in terms of, hey, oh, you're anxious? I'll pray. That's true. But the emphasis in this text, in, in context, the emphasis is on peace. And his point is this, the peace of God that comes to truly... That the peace of God that comes will come to those that truly know and walk with Jesus Christ. Because as they walk and know Jesus Christ, they will automatically depend on him. Because they depend on him, they'll pray and experience a peace. See, so just understand Paul's line of thought here, because I think it so helps. Knowing Christ in and through the gospel is championed throughout this whole letter. He wants us to come into a relationship with Christ. But his emphasis here is experiential. So I believe his point is this. When you truly know Christ and walk with Christ and love Christ, you will understand that the Lord is at hand. You will understand that the one who died in your place 
is the God of the Bible. And you understand that the one who died in your place then is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will hem you in both behind and before. He'll watch over your coming and your going. He will never leave your side. He's a keeper. He will help you. He will aid you. He will be closer than a brother to you. Now, does that mean that that individual who walks with Christ and knows his nearness never gets anxious? Of course not. You know, we live in a world that has troubles in it, doesn't it? As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. But for this individual who walks with Christ and knows his nearness, when they get anxious about things, they're not willing to just live then as functional atheists. They are giving themselves in prayer to the Lord. They know his nearness, and so they pray to him, and they cry out to him for grace. They lift their eyes to the hills from where their help comes from, and as a fruit of that, God then, in his grace, gives them the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, and that will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. I love that word, guard. You know, there was a garrison in in Philippi. They were well aware, they knew what a guard was. That's why he uses this analogy at several points throughout the letter. They know what guards look like. And so to be guarded by guards, you're safe. These guys were huge. They'd have spears and swords and armor. If you were guarded by a Roman battalion, you were safe. How much more safe are you then when you're guarded by the Lord? And the premise here is someone who knows Christ, who walks with Christ, will know he's near. So when they get anxious, they're not just going to sit there in functional atheism. They're going to pray before the Lord and he is going to issue them with a guard that will guard their hearts. A guard that is called the peace of God. And so even in the midst of their situation and challenge and difficulty, their hearts will be at peace because God himself will guard it. Is that not attractive to you? Because it is me. There are so many things that happen in our lives. You know, we could be professional anxieties. You know what I'm saying? There are so many things that go on in our life. You think, oh, I'm anxious about that. And then at different times you're anxious because there doesn't appear to be anything anxious about. So you must be missing something. You know, there's so many things that we can get anxious about. But how, how profound is this? When you experience that it is possible to walk with Christ and to know his nearness and then pray to him and not then continue to struggle with anxiety because the peace of God guards your heart. Oh, I want that. I want that peace. Not that everything in the horizontal goes away. It's still there. But it's not as noisy anymore because your heart is guarded and you know there is one who holds you who keeps you, who goes before you, who assures you that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Does that not whet your appetite for knowing Christ more? And So what does a gospel-affected soul look like? Well, a gospel-affected soul is joyful. It's an individual that no matter what happens in the horizontal, they are finding joy in the Lord because he is worthy of joy. He's worthy of all praise. And as they look and remind themselves that their names are written in the book of life and they're forgiven and justified and redeemed and heaven is their home, they find great joy, solid, stable, durable joy in him. Gospel-affected soul is gentle. 
whatever is thrown at them, even if it is wrong and they are wronged, they're gentle in response because they walk with Christ. And as they walk with Christ, they automatically then walk with a limp. Because they're so aware, I'm not worthy to walk with him. And a gospel-affected soul is peaceful. Whatever comes your way, you find peace in the Lord. Peace in God himself. And what we have here then in these four verses are not just three dry commands to follow, I think, but three imperatives designed to whet our appetites, to teach us one thing, that knowing Christ in and through the gospel can have a sincere and ongoing effect on our hearts. Isn't that beautiful? So here's my question. In closing to every person in the room, do you personally and presently know Christ for yourself? Do you know him personally? Not just know of him? Not just read about this guy in the Bible and say it's sort of it's information, it's nice. But know him experientially. See, Christianity isn't following a group of doctrines. Christianity is spending time with a person. Because as our foster son says, Jesus is alive. It's a relationship with someone who's alive. A friend. A brother, a lord, a king. Do you know him personally like that? And do you know him presently? Not just in a way where you can say, yeah, I remember 15 years ago when I became a Christian. Man, I was excited. Okay, but what about now? What about your experience now? Do you know him presently and personally now? And as I prayed and waited on the Lord, I believe he gave me three groups of people that I want to address in closing. The first are those who have never known Christ for yourself. You've never known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour in a personal way. I want to encourage you, this text speaks to you. Because in God's amazing grace, he came on a rescue mission so he could relate to you. He came after you personally, even though he died on the cross. And he made it possible through his death and his resurrection for you to have a relationship with him. He made it possible for you to be forgiven of your sin and redeemed and reconciled to the creator of the universe. And all you need to do in that is repent of your sin and put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And you will be saved. As an expression of that salvation, you can then have a relationship with him. This text is glorious. It's an invitation to you. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then before you go home today, put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And you'll know him as such. You'll know his nearness. You'll know the person that he is. And heaven will be your home. The second group are those who have known Christ in the past. But functionally, you really don't know him anymore. You remember back to a time when you were really close and you were really jazzed and excited about this relationship you had with him. And yet now you, you don't have that feeling so much at all. In fact, as you consider your relationship with God, it, 
to your shame, it's almost a bit of a joke. You don't have a relationship with God. Not experientially. Not functionally. Maybe you got distracted somewhere along the line. Maybe you walked through a time of suffering. Maybe you walked through a struggle in your time. But whatever went wrong, somewhere along the line you realised, I once knew Christ, but as I assess myself now, I just don't. I, I don't know where I've gone. I don't know where he's gone, but this isn't experiential. Friends, I want to encourage you, this text was written for you, I think. And it's written by Paul under the influence of God to pull you back to himself. It's written to whet your appetite of what can be when you have a relationship with God. And I want to encourage you. We worship a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we worship a God who is beautifully and wonderfully illustrated for us in Luke chapter 15. We get introduced to this young lad who rejects the father, who's not interested in the father. He goes off and he starts eating with the pigs. He wants all his inheritance. I'm going to do my thing. You know, I appreciate this. Yeah, I appreciate what you've done for me in the past. But I'm going to go do my thing. And when the prodigal son comes to his senses, he goes back to the father, assuming that he, he may or may not get accepted. And if he does get accepted, he might just be a servant or something like that. But as he begins to walks back to the Father, wondering what is going to happen, he would have seen on the horizon a Father that has not only been waiting for him, but a Father who now comes running towards him to greet him and welcome him home. My friends, if you once knew Christ, but you don't know him now, don't not come back thinking, I wonder what type of reaction I will get. Because here's what type of reaction you will get. You will find a saviour running towards you to welcome you home. You will find a saviour running towards you to renew your passion in him. You will find a saviour running towards you afresh to tell you of his love for you and joy in you and passion for you. So come back to him. Come back. That's why this is here. To whet your appetite, to bring you back. And the final group are this. Those who know Christ and really want to know him more. You do know him. But as you tour around these things, this peace and this joy and this gentleness, what it does in your heart is you just think, I want to know him more. I want to know him even greater. Well, that's good news, eh? It means the Holy Spirit's done his work and the Word's done his work. I want to encourage you, if you truly want to know Christ more, spend time with him. Now, sometimes I think we live in a generation and a city that wants a quick fix for everything. We want a Maccas and we want it quick. They've been 30 seconds, you know, this is a long time. You know, we get like broadband and we're like, this is very slow to very slow. I used to have to load things off a tape. You know, wasn't it? We want everything real quick and we want these religious affections towards Christ. We want to fall in love with this man again and be totally amazed with Jesus again. But I've got one minute a week I can apply to that. I don't want, I'll read my Bible. I find that really hard. Praying, I tend to get a bit distracted. Worship music is kind of alright, but I prefer secular music. But I want religious affections for him. You can't have them. It doesn't work like that. 
Because Jesus isn't a group of doctrines. Jesus is a man. And if you really want to know him, you have to spend time with him like you would any other individual. But as you spend time with him, in his word, in prayer, in song, you will fall more and more in love with him. And this is what you'll then experience. You'll experience joy again. And you'll experience gentleness again in your tongue. And you'll experience peace again, despite your circumstances. Because you will more and more be working with Christ. And there is no greater thing than that. No greater thing. So would we all, by his grace, run hard after Christ? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are a person. And I thank you that you so desire to spend time with us and relate to us. You not only died for us, you not only paid the price for us at Calvary, but even now through your word you come running after us to encounter us and engage us, to pull us to yourself, knowing that you are the best thing for our soul. Lord, I do pray, would we be a people who truly know you? Lord, as I pray for this local church, Lord, there is no group of people in the world that I love more than this local church. And so, Lord, as their pastor, I pray, would they know you more? Because you are what this is all about. So, Lord, would we all know you personally and presently. And, Lord, in your splendor and grace, would this be a reality in our lives.